Welcome to the Ace Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ACED is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. So far this season, we've talked briefly about the opioid epidemic, stigma, and access to medications to treat opioid use disorder. Today, we'll be talking more in-depth about some different medication-based treatments for opioid use disorder, their effectiveness across different outcomes, and more. To do so, we'll be discussing Kelly E. Moore and colleagues' 2019 article, Effectiveness of Medication-Assisted Treatment for Opioid Use in Prison and Jail Settings, a Meta-Analysis and Systematic Review. Before we get started into the science and findings, however, think about how we know if something is effective. If it has support from one study, two studies? What if one study finds one thing and another study finds the opposite? How do we explain differences in results from multiple rigorous research projects? One way to make sense of existing scientific literature is to conduct a meta-analysis or systematic review. These types of studies systematically assess existing research on a topic to better understand a phenomenon. Say you're making an important decision like buying a new car. Because you're going to spend a lot of money, you want to talk to some close friends and get their recommendations. You ask one friend and they tell you the Dodge minivan is going to make you so happy. We bought it and it was the best decision ever. But let's say your friend has a large family, a dog, and loves to go on road trips, but you rarely drive, have a small household, and live in a city with limited parking. Now, let's say you ask a bunch of your friends for recommendations and take into account differences in their lifestyles, budgets, and more. The next friend says, just don't buy a Dodge minivan. I did, and it was terrible. I couldn't find parking. It got terrible gas mileage. It definitely won't make you happy. I recommend the Fiat. Then three more friends recommend the Fiat. You end up buying a car that you love based on multiple recommendations, considerations, and perspectives. This is how we can think about meta-analysis and systematic reviews. It is better to have scientific findings from a whole body of research than from a single study. Moore and colleagues conducted a meta-analysis to explore the effectiveness of methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone in carceral institutions. They wanted to know how effective the medications are at keeping people in treatment after release, how effective they are at preventing further opioid use after release, whether they had any effect on recidivism, and whether they prevented risky health behaviors. These types of studies mine several large databases to find all the existing research studies completed on a topic. For this meta-analysis, the authors checked two databases called PubMed and PsycInfo. They also put parameters on what they were looking for. In this case, they decided to review all the studies that examined medication-based therapies in prisons and jails, had a comparison group, and had one of the outcome measures they cared about. Applying that criteria to their search, they were left with 24 studies, of which 11 were quasi-experimental designs. These are studies that are not random, but use a variety of methods to create experimental and control groups that simulate random assignment, 
eight were randomized controlled trials, and five were follow-up studies. Before we get into the findings, let's pause. Remember that meta-analyses account for a whole body of research. Because of this, there's a lot to unpack. But don't worry, we'll work through it together. So take a deep breath and let's get into these findings. Let's start with what Moore and colleagues found about methadone. Three randomized controlled trials found that those who received methadone while incarcerated were more likely to engage in treatment after incarceration than the control group. Two observational studies found similar results. For post-release opioid use, four of the randomized controlled trials found those who received methadone while incarcerated were less likely to use opioids after release than the control group. Four of the observational studies found similar outcomes. One study, however, found no differences between post-release heroin and cocaine use between those who received methadone and a control group. Four of the randomized controlled trials had no significant differences between the methadone-treated group and the control group on recidivism. Five of the observational studies found mixed results for recidivism. Lastly, for risky health behaviors, three studies concluded methadone treatment while incarcerated reduced the odds of injection drug use after release. Other randomized controlled trials found no differences for health risk behaviors. Two observational studies found similar results that methadone treatment while incarcerated had no impact on post-release health behavior outcomes. However, one study found the methadone-treated group was less likely to share syringes and engaged in less HIV risk behaviors. So taken together, there seems to be pretty solid evidence that methadone is an effective treatment for opioid use disorders in carceral settings. That wasn't so bad, right? Okay, let's try again. Here we go. We'll talk about buprenorphine. Two randomized controlled trials found that those who received buprenorphine treatment while incarcerated were more likely to engage in post-incarceration treatment. Two studies found no significant results on post-incarceration treatment. Similarly, two studies found no differences between those who received buprenorphine while incarcerated and those in the control group on recidivism outcomes. Lastly, for health risk behaviors, one study did not find an effect of buprenorphine treatment in hospitalization as compared with no treatment. So we have mixed evidence of buprenorphine effect on post-incarceration treatment and little evidence that it impacts recidivism or health risk behaviors. All right, hang on. One more treatment to discuss, naltrexone. Two studies looked at the effects of naltrexone treatment while incarcerated on post-incarceration treatment engagement. One found those in the treatment group were more likely to engage in post-release treatment, and one found no significant differences. For post-incarceration opioid use, one study found naltrexone treatment while incarcerated resulted in no differences in the reported presence of use. However, delayed use compared to control groups. Another study found those who had treatment while incarcerated were less likely to use opioids at the one and two month marks as compared to the control group. Lastly, another study found no significant differences. For recidivism, two studies found no differences in reincarceration rates for those who received naltrexone while incarcerated compared to control groups. However, one study found those who received two injections had significantly fewer incarcerations than those who received one injection. Lastly, for health outcomes, one study found no differences between naltrexone treatment and the controls. One found the naltrexone injections prior to release 
increase the likelihood of achieving and maintaining viral suppression than control groups, and one study found no differences in hospital visits between naltrexone-treated individuals and control groups. In sum, the authors argue that this meta-analysis and systematic review provide strong evidence for methadone and other treatments for incarcerated populations. Importantly, methadone had the strongest impacts on substance use treatment adherence and use. The authors found those who received methadone while incarcerated are more than eight times as likely to engage in post-release treatment than those who did not. Moore and colleagues found that medication treatments did not consistently impact recidivism. The authors argue that this may be due to methodological challenges, such as differing following-up periods, definitions of recidivism, and medication access post-release. For outcomes related to risky health behaviors, Moore and colleagues did not find support that medication-based treatments have significant impacts. The authors argue for behavioral treatments in conjunction with medication-based treatments to address high-risk behaviors. Like when buying a car, it is important to consider multiple recommendations before moving forward. Moore and colleagues' meta-analysis and systematic review shows how receiving medication-based treatments for opioid use disorder can improve a variety of outcomes. Knowing that the literature suggests these treatments are effective, we must begin addressing why they are often underutilized and how to increase access to treatment. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. Additionally, we'd like to thank NIDA, Dr. Faye Taxman, and all the students and staff at ACE, including our podcast mastermind doctoral candidate, Shannon Magnuson, who is the brainchild behind this podcast. Oh wait, two more quick things. If you're a researcher and you'd like us to consider using one of your research articles or reports for an upcoming podcast, please send it to me, Danielle, at d-r-u-d-e-s at gmu.edu. If you'd like to support our podcast to keep the sense coming, please tell your friends and colleagues about us or assign this podcast to your students or staff. Thanks again, and please tune in again soon for another informative episode of the ACE Dip Podcast, translating science into sense.